Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science, including psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. In this interview episode, we're talking with an assistant professor of economics at Stockholm University who taught at Princeton University for the past six years. His research focuses on development economics, behavioral economics, psychology, and neurobiology, and especially how these correspond to poverty and mental health. Johannes Haushofer is a researcher who realized that not enough research on these topics has been conducted outside of the Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic countries. Ah, the weird countries. (laughs) That's it, Kurt. Weird countries have dominated research papers for years, and Johannes founded the Busara Center in Nairobi, Kenya, to find out how people outside of weird countries deal with all of the biases and heuristics written about in popular literature in the West. On top of that, he's a serious vocalist with access to a deeper range in his lower voice known as the vocal fry. You have to check out the links that we have in the notes that connect you to his YouTube examples of vocal fry in in a uh, shanty, a sailor uh, an shanty. Old, an old yes. sea shanty, yeah. <laughs> the sea shanty. Oh, it was. it is amazing. So definitely go and check those links out, click through, because you will be freaking amazed. Absolutely. And so also, thank you for listening. We encourage you right now to sit back with a, a glass of your favorite non-weird draft and enjoy a conversation with Johannes Haushofer. Johannes Haushofer, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are glad to have you here. And we're going to get started with a speed round, Johannes. So uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. All right. Okay. Johannes, if you could have dinner with your favorite sports star or favorite musician, which would you choose? Oh, Joan Baez, who has had such an interesting life and makes beautiful music. Wow. Fantastic! Wow. Oh, now, now you even have you you spurred Tim to even be more questions. At the end. <laughs> I, 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 I can tell it. I can tell <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, so um, how do you get to a flat one on when singing a sea shanty? Oh, <laughs> uh, I just keep going down, and it works much better on Sunday mornings. <laughs> <laughs> Implying that Saturday night might have something to do with that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. For those of you who don't know, there is, and we'll have this in the show notes, there's a fantastic, fantastic little clip of Johannes singing really deep on a, on a sea shanty that is amazing, amazing yes, stuff. Delightful stuff. Yeah. You talk about it. Anyway, we'll, 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 get to, we'll get to that later here. All right. Last question. Do unconditional cash transfers impact people's psychological safety, or is that just a moot point? I don't know a lot of psychological safety. Um, That's sort of alluding to the research of Amy Edmondson at Harvard, I think. And I don't know that field very well, but they definitely impact people's psychological well-being. So variables like happiness, depression, stress, life satisfaction, those are very strongly affected by cash transfers, yeah. 
All right. Well, so Johannes, you've you've done a lot of research on on the psychology of poverty. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and what got you interested in that line of research? Yeah, I originally got interested in poverty alleviation as a goal in itself that I was interested in without necessarily a link to psychological well-being. Although I've always been sympathetic to the idea that we can measure welfare in more ways than just economic outcomes, which is what economists have tended to do. And so cash transfers entered the conversation, you know, around, for me at least, around the early 2010s when Gift Directly stepped onto the scene. So this NGO that makes unconditional cash transfers to families in developing countries started in Kenya. I should say that cash transfers are a much older idea than that, but that's when I discovered cash transfers. And that seemed like a very interesting way to alleviate poverty. And when I then started working with GIFT directly, my own background in psychology and neuroscience sort of led me to this question of wanting to understand impacts on psychological well-being, which also wasn't, you know, neither new nor mine. People have done that kind of thing before, but that's how my own interest started. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, about some of the things that you've discovered, the relationship between income and happiness, basically. Yeah. So there's been a lot of research interest in this over the decades and maybe even centuries. And a lot of the early work has been correlational. So comparing the happiness and life satisfaction of rich people to that of poor people or the average happiness and life satisfaction of rich countries to that of poor countries. And there've been very intense debates raging around this, starting with something called the Easterlin paradox, which was a discovery by Richard Easterlin from the 1970s saying that there is a correlation between income and happiness within countries, but not across countries. So, you know, rich people in the US are happier than poor people, but it's not the case that the US as a richer country is happier than, let's say, Kenya, a poor country. And that was the state of knowledge for a pretty long time until we had much more and better data and could look at that question again. And so a team of people around Justin Wolfers, Betsy Stevenson, and a few others, Daniel Sachs, in you know the early 2000s, got interested in this question again and found that, in fact, there wasn't a paradox. So there was a pretty strong relationship between income and happiness both within and across countries. So rich people are happier than poor people within the same country, but also richer countries on average are happier than poor countries. So is that to say that poor people in a rich country are generally happier than poor people in a poor country? Not necessarily. There's probably overlap. And I don't know the, you know, the specific answer, like how far you would go, have to go down in the sort of average income of countries in order to make those distributions not overlap. My guess is that there's always going to be overlap, but the correlation is there in both cases and it's pretty strong and roughly equal magnitude in both cases. So Johannes, there's obviously been a lot of research and, or at least in the common press that, Hey, after $70,000 or whatever, that certain step, that happiness isn't necessarily increased. So it sounds like your research is maybe questioning some of that. Is that, is that the case? So not so much my research, but maybe that of others. So that claim comes mainly from a paper that was published in the journal PNAS in 2010 by Angus Deaton and Daniel Kahneman, both Mm -hmm. at Princeton at the time, that showed that the correlation between one specific aspect of well-being, namely hedonic well-being, so emotional Mm -hmm. well-being, feelings of happiness, that correlation becomes very small 
after $75,000 in the US. Whereas another correlation keeps, uh, it still exists at even the upper echelons of the income distribution, and that's the correlation between life satisfaction uh, or evaluative well-being, as they call it, and income. So their, their claim... You know, no, so uh, so it, it, for our listeners, help explain the difference between yeah. these, these two. Exactly. So their claim was basically that at $75,000, you stop experiencing more feelings of happiness, uh, emotions of happiness as your income grows, but you still add to your life satisfaction. So like a bird's eye, more cognitive, perhaps, view of your life. Uh, and an overall evaluation of your life, that still keeps going up after $75,000, but additional emotions of happiness don't enter your life uh, after that point. So that was the claim in that paper. Um, but there's since been research, again, by Betsy Stevenson and Justin Wilfers and a few others showing that income, the happiness and life satisfaction rise in the logarithm of income. So the relationship mm. does get flatter as incomes rise, but it's still positive for both kinds of variables, for evaluative and hedonic well-being, uh, for both you know life evaluation and emotions of happiness. So as far as I'm aware, that's where we currently stand. It goes up uh, in both variables, you know, which really whichever way you measure well-being, life's it, it goes up as incomes rise, and that keeps being true even at you know up to very high levels of incomes. Okay. Yeah. So the, the 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 common thing again that was I think published by Daniel Pink in his book Drive and has gotten a lot of that. So it seems like the research has moved beyond that simple threshold and saying there are other a metrics of well-being that this maybe didn't maybe didn't take into account and two even within that there's some nuances there and there's a logarithmic element to this that yes that that well-being still continues to rise, maybe not as quickly or yes. as, as you said, that's that that's steep. Okay. Exactly. Fantastic. Yeah. And then the other thing to say is that that's all correlational work, which is great and very important. But I think what, what my interest has been in is mainly trying to establish a causal link there. And mm. so that's where these field experiments on cash transfers come in. Well, tell us a little bit more about some of those uh, cash transfers and what are you finding? What are you first, what are you trying to get? You said, obviously, some causal pieces, but what are the specifics around that? And then what do you, what have you been finding? Yeah. So like I mentioned, I started working with this organization, Gift Directly, who make unconditional cash transfers as their main uh, reason for being to low-income families in developing countries. And I was interested in that program because it's a really interesting poverty alleviation intervention in its own right. And so I was interested in understanding what it does to people's lives, not just from psychological well-being's point of view, but also from the point of view of temptation, good consumption, labor market outcomes, economic well-being, and so on. But it also is a great setting to ask this scientific question about the impact of a almost definitional change in poverty on psychological well-being. And so we ran a randomized experiment in Kenya where about 500 families got these fairly large cash transfers, about $700 on average per family, and the control group didn't. And then over the course of the next nine to 12 months or so, we came back and surveyed the treatment and the control group uh, about various aspects of their lives, including all of these variables I just mentioned, but also importantly, many dimensions of psychological well-being. So stress, happiness, depression, and life satisfaction. We also measured the stress hormone cortisol to have an objective outcome measure in addition to all the self-reports. And the 
basic answer is that all of these things get uh, quote unquote better. So mm, people's depression goes down, stress goes down, happiness and life satisfaction rise. And when we make really large transfers or rather gift directly makes really large transfers, we even see reductions in cortisol levels. Mm. So that was encouraging that we could validate it, the self-reported data with the biological marker of stress. Yeah. So Johannes, I'm sorry. Uh, is this the research where you also did uh, a one large lump sum cash payment versus monthly payments? And there's some differences in how people were spending that money. And, and again, some of those differences, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. So we did vary the frequency with which the transfers were made. Some families got the whole $700 as one big chunk. Others got it in a trickle over the course of nine months. And there were some differences in how people used the money. So the people who got large lump sums tended to spend it on large expensive items, like, for example, buying cows, whereas the people who got the nine monthly installments that were somewhat smaller were more likely to spend it on consumption. So food, uh, food security improved a lot in that group because they were more likely to use it to feed their families. And were there differences between the way they responded, like their cortisol levels? And responded depression, stress, things like that. Yeah, so the psychological well-being variables looked somewhat better in the people who got the large lump sum transfers, potentially because they made these investments that are going to pay off longer into the future than the people who got the monthly transfers, who you know might have been close to realizing, oh, you know, I've been eating better for a couple of months now, but this is coming to an end. Mm, interesting. It it really is, and I, I'm just struck by the the quality of the work that you've done and the impact that it could have on lots of other countries are you are you seeing other uh, policymakers in other countries looking at this and having conversations with you is uh, I just I think it's fantastic I guess on at a really simple level it's just fantastic to be able to come up with this but what sort of uh, uptake are you seeing with 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 other nations? Yeah, so there's been a lot of interest in cash transfers, and I should say that you know this wasn't the cash transfers weren't my idea doing a study on it wasn't my idea. This is uh, you know many other people have worked in this space, and there has been a lot of interest from policymakers in cash as a way to improve people's lives. That's mainly been true in humanitarian contexts. So, for example, mm -hmm. in the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, lots of organizations, including UNHCR, got much more interested in cash transfers after the research began to show that they really do a lot of good things. So they moved from in-kind transfers like food and blankets to what they called winterization grants, which is just a bunch of cash, and then you can buy things yourself. That doesn't work in all contexts, of course. You know, there are situations where the there isn't enough of a market for cash to be valuable. You might imagine places like Haiti after uh, a natural disaster. But in lots of contexts where there are some markets, cash is really very good because people can spend it flexibly. And so humanitarian settings is one place where there's been quite a lot of traction. Governments have gotten very interested in it. So many sub-Saharan African countries are now doing cash transfers for vulnerable populations. Often that's orphans, widowers and widows and so on. And then in the context of COVID, of course, there's been a lot of interest in, you know, there's just been stimulus checks in the US and other countries have done similar things. So yeah, I think it's it's received a fair amount of attention from policymakers. I, th I still think there could be more. There's still lots of prejudice around how people will waste the money, but it's moving in the right direction generally, I think. Yeah. So Johannes, and this may not have any relationship, but just want your thoughts on this. So 
UBI, universal basic income, was a, a topic, at least within the United States, uh, during the presidential election. One of the candidates was really pushing it. And it's gotten a, a fair amount of traction within at least a, a small percentage. And I don't know if, if your research kind of is relates to that. Does does a universal basic income take into account some of these insights that you've gained from just the 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 one time or the trash? Yeah, excuse me, the cash transfers that that you're you're talking about here. I think it does take on board a few insights. The main ones being that people are very unlikely to spend money that falls into their lap on alcohol and uh, that they're quite unlikely to stop working. Now, mm. there's one big caveat for universal basic income, which is usually thought of as being a pretty long-term intervention, an annuity that will last for years and perhaps decades. And there, the argument in favor of no labor supply effects at all is weaker. You might imagine that... So for a, for a one-time cash transfer the disincentive to continue working is very weak. You know, you yeah. know that things right. are going to come once right. and then you're on your own again. Uh, and not surprisingly, people don't really reduce labor effort. For UBI, that's a harder argument. I, all the surveys show and much, you know, some data is starting to show that if anything, it goes in the other direction. People work more. They really try to make the most of the money. So I'm not really worried about this, but the, the translation from the one-time cash transfers doesn't work as cleanly here. Mm. But it at least gives us hope that people, you know, don't just completely blindly stop working. And the other thing is still true. They certainly don't look like they're spending a lot more on temptation goods. Yeah. Can, can this story be expanded into lottery winners? who are taking one-time extremely large uh, cash payouts? Yeah, and there we even have some data. So you don't even have to extrapolate from my work. There's some really good research from the UK and from Sweden. Uh, Sweden is a lovely case study because there have been very large lottery programs that a large share of the population participated in. So you don't have the problem that you often have with lottery studies, which is that the people who tend to play uh, are a very selected group of the population who, you know, arguably don't understand probability very well. And, <laughs> and so in, in Sweden, for there's a couple of programs that didn't have that feature where lots of people did play. And there have been studies by some of my colleagues here in Stockholm uh, on the long-term effects on self-reported well-being as well as the consumption of mental health drugs, so anxiolytics specifically. And both of those tend to get better. So people are... Uh, more satisfied with their lives and slightly less likely to consume mental health drugs after they win the lottery. Wow, so, that's fascinating. So it's a positive effect. It's a positive yeah. effect. Yeah. So the the sort of popular perception that the lottery messes with people's lives and destroys them from the point of view of psychological well-being is not true. Hmm. Interesting. I, yeah, because the popular narrative is uh, is basically people crash and burn. That right. They, you know, exactly. that the number of people who get into all kinds of trouble uh, yeah. in their lives, not and uh, psychologically, you know, emotionally, uh, sexually, you know, mm -hmm. all, all kinds of, you know, things just go downhill. Right. Um, but overall, what you see again, th this is this could be a, a small group, uh, an underrepresented or uh, a small group overrepresenting, you know, uh, a statistic that really overall yeah. you see things were actually pretty good for lottery winners. Yeah, on average, their lives get much better. And these stories of people's lives being destroyed by the lottery, that's, 
as far as we can tell, just anecdotes, um, yeah. which of course, you know, that's not to say that that's not horrible for these people, but it doesn't look like uh, on average lotteries make people's lives worse. If anything, they make them much better. Which is an interesting piece. And it goes back to, I think, some of the what you found with just the unconditional cash transfers is we have the lottery winner. If, if you would have just asked a normal person before people talked about these anecdotals, like, of course, winning a lottery would be a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. We could, it would be, I, I'd feel financially secure. I could do these things I didn't want to. And so you kind of assume, and that's why people play them. So, and and the, the, the contrary on the unconditional is like, oh, well, if you give me a big bunch of cash, then I'm just going to go and spend it on alcohol and and I'm going to quit my job and different things. And so, Mm -hmm. but yet if you actually think about human behavior and and human just well-being, you're not just because you have more money doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to quit your job because that's probably some meaning for you. It's part of your self-identity. And so again, thinking about this, I think what your research is showing is that people are more like the people we would maybe expect them to be than some of these others. Right. And and maybe more similar than to how we ourselves would handle a cash transfer. You know, the, the reaction to cash transfers always often contains a surprising amount of arrogance. Like I handle a cash transfer perfectly <laughs> fine, but those other folks, they can't deal with it and they would waste it. So Exactly. It's like, me. oh, I would be fine, but don't give it to those people. Yeah. 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 Of course. So one of the things that we love about your work is that you published a CV of failures. Mm-hmm. And this this reminds us of a conversation we had with Michael Hallsworth a couple of years ago when Michael was just boasting almost the fact that he took this really great result in one area and tried to port it over to another area and it failed terribly and, and made a big deal out of, hey, we, we shouldn't just make these assumptions. But can, can you tell uh, tell us a little bit about your CV of failures and how it kind of exploded into something that became kind of cool? Yeah, that was very surprising. I can't tell you why it exploded, but I can tell you how it came about. So Uh, I read an article in the journal Nature in 2010 written by a neuroscientist who's now someone who's now a neuroscientist in Edinburgh called Melanie Stefan, who wrote a sort of jobs career advice column in Nature. And she suggested this idea as a way of keeping track of all the things you've tried and to sort of make you a little bit feel a little better about, you know, having really attempted a lot of things. And I thought that was a very interesting idea and sort of sketched down a few bullet points and then sent them to a friend who had just been rejected for a a professor job at the time. And that seemed to help her. And then a few years later, that happened again, like someone close to me didn't get something that they had applied for. And I updated the CV and sent it to her again. Uh, And that again seemed to help. And then I said, oh, what the hell? Let me just put it on my website. I'm already (laughs) sending it around to folks anyway. (laughs) And then it didn't take very long. So a week later, BuzzFeed picked it up and it exploded. And I was very surprised. And <laughs> Well, I think, uh, and, and we apologize for this, because my favorite part of that CV is your, is your meta failure, uh. which is the <laughs> idea that your CV of failures has received more attention than the body of your academic yeah, I work. St- I think that's still true. <laughs> it's probably stayed true for a while. That being said, though, it obviously is catching hold because it's, it's as you said, when you give it to uh, these friends who have gone through rejection or they didn't get the job they, they want, there's some solace there. 
And mm-hmm. so just that idea. So what do you think, how is it helping people? I mean, obviously it's, it's drawing their attention, but I think there's also an element of help here. And I don't know if you've thought about this and if you haven't, that's fine, but yeah. I, yeah, I think there's two elements. One is a sort of feeling of solidarity. You know, this happens to all of us. I've been there. I know what you feel like, and you feel less alone in your momentary feeling of defeat. Uh, and then I think there was an element when I did it, I was at Princeton at the time, and I was sort of this privileged white guy. And so this came sort of from a position of power and privilege. And I, I think that sort of contributed additionally to give it traction for better or worse. Like I was a little uncomfortable by that, but that was the other factor I think that was, that was important because also because other people had done it before me. I mean, there was no, again, I wasn't the first person to have written a CV like that. It just took off because I had this like institutional affiliation. Yeah, we we've talked with Annie Duke and the the idea of luck comes into play. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. like, why did yours take off and others didn't? I also wonder, we actually just had a conversation about restorative narratives. Tim, who was that with Uh, this? This basically the idea of a restorative narrative is that the stories we tell, particularly sometimes in, in disasters and different things, are always this negative piece. And a restorative narrative is at the end is that you're showing progress or hope and help. And those have been really powerful in getting people to actually, A, make a difference. So in donations and other pieces, you're more likely to give a donation if you hear the story of hurricane, you know, terrible stuff. But now we're starting to rebuild as opposed to just hurricane houses are, are destroyed. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an element of that restorative part for for this is saying, right. had all these failures, but look, I am look, I'm doing actually pretty good. And and for people to have that hope piece on the end, I think is important. Right, exactly. I th- I think so. I think you're alluding to Nicole Damon's work. This was a I think a an important factor as well that this whole Princeton affiliation contributed to. That you know it can still work out for me in some fashion, even if it doesn't seem so great right now. So what do you think about the replication crisis? <laughs> I think it's real. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I, I've been, yeah, I've been very worried about, you know, especially in psychology, it's been strong, but uh, there are other fields that have elements of it. Definitely economics, which is my field now also does. So yeah, I think it's a serious problem. I think people are making great efforts to address it, but I also think that there's, an old guard who are not interested in in that kind of progress. And so I think it'll get much better eventually, but it'll take a little while until some of that resistance is overcome. But yeah, I definitely think it's a big, big problem. Where's the resistance coming from? What on, on what basis is, is there resistance other than potentially ego or hubris? Uh, um, I think it probably is those things. So I can tell you a little story. In my third year review at Princeton, so after you've been a professor for three years, they sit you down and they tell you how they think things are going. And a senior psychologist in my department said, there needs to be a Haushofer effect. So what she meant by that was that I had to put my name on some discovery and then that becomes mine and I run with it and I defend it uh, against attackers. Ah. And I think that's a pretty common theme in psychology. Economists, I think, are much more intellectually promiscuous. They flirt with (laughs) various ideas over the course of their career and they publish a paper here and a paper there and they aren't wet to any particular idea. In psychology, it's very much the case that you make your name 
based on some discovery that you then drill deeper and deeper on. And if someone then blows a hole in that by showing that it doesn't replicate, that's a huge deal for a psychologist, where for an economist, you know, you just move on to the next thing and say, oh, yeah, I was wrong there. How interesting. But I really think ego does come into play quite a lot in psychology. And it was interesting in that meeting, you know, the other person sitting in that meeting was an economist who immediately responded, no, there doesn't need to be a house over it. <laughs> uh, interesting. But that's genuinely what the psychologists thought. And so I think that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult in psychology. People have put their name on these effects and they want them to be true and they defend them even in the face of pretty strong evidence that they don't replicate. Mm. So they're saving face to, to a large degree as yeah, well as sort of a, not, not just on a personal basis, but almost on an institutional basis. Like this is the way we do things. Is that right? That I don't know. Maybe to some extent. I think it's mainly like on a personal level, this is my effect and I'm going to defend it. In terms of the way we do things, okay, okay, what you mean is like, you know, you have to have your effect and that's yours. I don't know if that's um, sort of a, if that in itself is a motivation to to sort of hold on to those effects, I think it's more sort of the personal, everybody has a version of that for themselves and they're worried about that sort of being taken from them. Yeah, it gets woven into their self-identity. It gets woven into their uh, work identity. And, and yeah. then you take that away and, you know, I've worked 20 years for what? So there's yeah, that element. Yeah, I think that's that's a part of it, yeah. Yeah. I want to move because uh, you've done some really, b besides just this wonderful research and, you know, your CV of failures and everything else that you've done, you also were instrumental in the founding of the Becerra Center uh, mm -hmm. for Behavioral Economics, which is a uh, nonprofit in Kenya. And so, A, would love to hear a little bit about the story of how you started that. You talked about some of your work with the GIF directly, but how did, how did Becerra start? Busara started when I wrote a grant in around 2010 saying that I wanted to do some behavioral economic studies in Kenya. Uh, and I realized that there wasn't a lab that would allow me to do them. And I also looked around other places and there weren't labs in developing countries or none that I could find, at least at the time. Now there's a whole bunch. And that seemed like a huge gap to me. And this was right around the same time that psychology was realizing that it had what became termed, came to be termed the weird problem. Lots yeah. of the participants in psychology studies are Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. So, or from those societies, weird. And Joe Hendrick was the person who mainly wrote about this, who's now at Harvard. And between those two things and the fact that I had this grant and a little bit of money and Finally, the fact that Innovations for Poverty Action, the wonderful NGO that I was doing a lot of work with at the time in Kenya, had some empty office space in Nairobi. I decided, let's just give this a try. And so I bought a bunch of computers and sent a few of my friends an email saying, hey, I'm setting up a lab. Do you want to run studies there? I'm just going to take, you know, cover my own costs and we'll run the study for you. And that really took off more than I expected. So there were some early adopters like Ted Miguel at Berkeley and others who used it very uh, intensively. And then that very quickly led to Busara becoming the organization that it is now. So help us understand some of the research that has been done there. And again, you've done a lot. I mean, it's done a lot. And we talked with uh, Channing Jang already mm -hmm. on, on the show, and he's talked yeah. a little bit about some of his stuff. But just 
from your perspective, what are what are some of the highlights and where do you hope to see it going in the future? Yeah, so I think some of the most interesting studies have been the ones on that use interactions with people from different ethnicities as a manipulation in the experiment. So you might, for example, ask whether people behave more or less pro-socially towards someone who, lo- who belongs to a different tribe. Uh, and so some of the early studies, again, by Ted Miguel and colleagues have looked at that question. And Kenya is a very interesting place to do that because there are pretty clear ethnic divisions. There has been recent uh, ethnic tension around the 2007 uh, election. And so it's a pretty good place to study this kind of question. And the lab is an excellent place to do it because it allows you this control. You can very tightly control what information a participant gets presented about the person that they're playing with. And that allows you to make very accurate statements about how they behave vis-a-vis people from one versus the other ethnicity. And there've been a number of studies in that direction at Bosara. That's sort of one of the largest groups of studies that, that we've done there. And then in terms of where I'm hoping that it'll go, I think organizationally, Bosara is moving in the direction of building more labs in other places. So I would really like there to be, you know, a Busara in every country in the world. We need much more representation. The average participant in a psychology or behavioral economics or political science study is still uh, a white U.S. undergrad. Yep. And that really needs to change. The average world citizen looks very different from that. So even if you wanted to make it the average world citizen, uh, you'd yeah. probably start a lot of labs in China. Um, and so... <laughs> That's one direction. Um, my own work has very much moved in the direction of mental health. I've gotten quite interested in depression uh, as both an outcome and a driver of poverty. And so I'm doing some of that work together with Basara. That's a, uh, you just teed up something that really caught my attention uh, as mental health being both a driver and an outcome. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the outcome... We kind of knew from the cash transfer work in the sense that when you alleviate poverty, mental health improves. So that's the early work that I discussed earlier. And so by if you flip that around, that would suggest that if poverty increases, mental health gets worse. That's not implied by necessity, but it's likely. And there's other evidence to think that that is true. You know, if you look at people who lose their jobs or experience natural disasters or suffer from COVID, for example, um, there's some evidence on that. So that link is pretty clear that poverty drives mental health. The degree to which mental health drives poverty is still a little less certain um, because for that you need exogenous experimental variation in mental health. And that's, of course, only ethical in the positive direction. So you can improve someone's mental health and then see if they improve their economic situation. And there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that that's true. The most obvious mechanism you you could think of for that is that depression puts you out of work. You can't Mm. pursue a career anymore if you're depressed. And so when you help someone with their depression, they're again able to earn a living. And there's some evidence to suggest that that happens when you give people therapy or uh, there's new work by Manuela Angelucci and Dan Bennett showing that drug therapy for depression has some positive economic effects as well. You've also done some work on stress and how Mm -hmm. stress impacts choices and various different things. Granted, not, uh, you know, the emotional uh, well-being necessarily to, to that degree. But uh, can you talk a little bit about the how stress impacts choices? Yeah, so that effect seems to be there. The things that I've looked at have mostly been time and risk preferences. So it turns mm-hmm. out that stress makes people 
quite a lot more impatient and present biased than they otherwise would be, and it makes them more risk averse. And so if you're living in a low income context uh, and you're supposed to make investments in health and education and long-term outcomes like that, that may not be a good thing. And if you're supposed to you know, make a go of it in a business, that may also not be a good thing to be very risk averse. So those, those effects exist. They're not super strong. They come up in some studies and they don't come up in others. And part of the reason I got more interested in mental health is because that seems like a very powerful channel, you know, when chronic stress turns into clinical disorders like depression, that, that seems like a more powerful driver of economic outcomes. But the stress effects are there and they're quite interesting. So I think that sort of naturally leads us to one of the greatest opportunities that we have in our lives to reduce stress, and that's music. So, right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so uh, there uh, we we have the opportunity to talk to lots of researchers, uh, some of which really don't give a flying flip about music. Some of them are are mildly curious, and occasionally we get to talk to someone who's who's actually really interested in music. Uh, you know, M Michael Hallsworth, bring him up again. You know, he actually likes to sit down and play the piano at holiday gatherings with his family. Oh, so, nice. so that's kind of nice. But rarely do we get to talk to researchers who are as active in music as you are. I mean, you've posted about it. You've you've been singing in in Swedish choral uh, <laughs> groups for for some time. Yeah. What? So can we just start back? What got you interested in music, and how long have you been singing on a pretty serious basis? I've really been singing all my life. Like I started singing in in school very early on, and I've always enjoyed doing that. And um, there was a very strong tradition in the town where I grew up in Bavaria of learning instruments. So there was a pretty good symphony orchestra, even though it's a town of only 50,000 people. And the musicians in that orchestra gave lessons to the students in the town. And so I learned piano and cello um, in that context. And then singing was always part of it as well. So school choir, and then I sang in one of those cheesy boy a cappella groups in college. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, when I was in grad school, I joined a Scandinavian vocal group in Boston. Uh, and that was very fun. And then when I moved to Zurich, I discovered that there was like a network of Scandinavian choirs in most major cities in the world. So Zurich had a Swedish choir. And then I went, when I moved to Princeton, there's a Swedish choir in New York that I joined. And so that's what got me into Scandinavian choral music. And that's been a passion ever since. And so here in Stockholm, I sing in a choir called Stockholm University Choir that doesn't have much to do with the university, but it's a lovely group of people who are pretty good singers and very fun. This sounds like a, a nefarious underground, this whole idea that there are Swedish choirs all over the world. I'm, I'm a little nervous about this now. As, as takeovers go, it's a pretty benign one. <laughs> well, so... Is is the Swedish choir? Is it just because it's uh, singing in in a Scandinavian? I mean, is there a specific musical style? And and forgive me, Tim is our musical expert. I am not. So uh, help me understand what what a Scandinavian or a Swedish choir is compared to just a normal choir. Is it just because they're singing in Swedish? Uh, mostly, they mostly. Okay. I think it's a mix in most of the choirs that I've been in. There's the occasional English or German song, but. Often they do sing Scandinavian music, and I really love Scandinavian choral music. It's a very, very rich repertoire of choral music for reasons that I don't quite understand. Scandinavia has a very full and deep tradition of choral singing. And uh, the songs are 
much in contrast to, for example, German folk songs, which can be quite simple. I mean, there's, you know, there's the leader, like the very fancy, fully composed from beginning to end music, like Schubert leader. But then the folk songs are really quite simple. It's sort of like three chords that repeats, you know, over six verses. Scandinavian folk songs are somewhere in the middle. They're, they don't have the sort of, you know, perhaps musical sophistication of like a, a Schubert lead, but they are much more complex than these like simple German folk songs. And so they, they have very interesting terms of harmony and, uh, and chord progressions. Um, and uh, the arrangements are often really beautiful with, um, again, with chords that you wouldn't expect in, in folk songs where you're used to like, you know, uh, CGF and then that repeats a bunch of times. I think that's fantastic. I grew up in St. Louis in the kind of the heartland of the U.S. and uh, spent my first year at the Conservatory of Music mm. in, in Kansas City. But one of the schools that I looked at because I someone thought, uh, believed that I had a decent voice, I did not. <laughs> I absolutely, totally disagreed. Uh, but they suggested uh, St. Olaf's uh, in Minnesota, which is uh-huh. a Swedish-founded school. Right. Um, and they've got a fantastic choir. And when I graduated from high school, they had a record of their of their work. And ironically, and this is actually a link to Sea Shanties, one of my favorite tracks from that record was uh, a rendering that they did of uh, Shenandoah, which is oh, a, mm-hmm. an old yeah. sea shanty. Right. And it was just like, uh, and uh, so I'm putting things together now about Swedish folk folk music mm-hmm. and and uh, sort of the underground uh, world domination uh, theme <laughs> that the Swedish choral <laughs> groups have going, and that brings me back to the sea shanties. Uh, so you you've been exposed to a lot of vocal music. How is it that you got interested in sea shanties of all things? You've got this you know lovely you know. Uh, Twitter piece with with the YouTube, which we're going to link to, because you sound great <laughs> on it. But it's a, it's a lovely tune. It's a, it's an old English song. Yeah, you know, I'm not actually really interested in sea shanties. It's just that it so <laughs> happened uh, that this that this thing went viral, and I saw people sort of adding their own harmony to the original, which was just like voice solo. And so I thought, oh, you know, this is a fun Sunday afternoon activity. And so I did it. But I don't have like a particular interest in sea shanties. And, and I don't really know any others apart from this one. And even this one, I don't know very well. Well, in that, and, and you talk about, because you, and again, we will we'll link to this so people can go out and listen. But you get very deep uh, in, mm. in, in your voice voice registry. And you talk a little bit about doing that with something called a vocal fry. Mm-hmm. So can you, and again, I have no clue what that means. Tim might, I don't. So help, help explain it for people like me. <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, I, I can't explain it much more than that. It's, um, it's a register that starts below the modal register that most singers have. And I don't know how it works physically, but I happen to have it. Not everyone does. And this was something that like a music, uh, like a voice coach discovered a couple of years ago that, you know, he made me do scales and I, I turned out to be able to go much lower than he anticipated and much more, much lower than my speaking voice would suggest. And so he said, Oh, it turns out you have this register. And that's really nice because I love singing bass. And so I always end up in singing bass too in every choir that I go to because every now and then you need someone to go down to C or something like that. And I can do that. 
but I, I don't know a lot more about vocal fry other than that it's this register that sits That's below the, the standard one. Um, and it's used in some fascinating styles of music. So, for example, there's a tradition called Basso Profundo in Russia. So if you type that into YouTube, you'll hear the most amazing pieces of music with singers that you more feel than hear. It's really fascinating. Oh, wow. And your control of pitch in that range is much more difficult than it is in, in sort of the general range. How do you, how do you control pitch in, in this uh, vocal fry area? I don't know, to be honest. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> because like you said, I mean, because you're feeling it more than actually hearing it. You're, yeah. you're, so how do you know that you're actually hitting that A flat one? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure as most singing, your ear is really more important than your voice. You need to be able to hear very well what you're doing. And I like to have my hand over my ear a little bit like they do in Corsican singing so I can hear my own voice better. But I haven't had training and I, you know, you can probably also tell from that video, like I, I do wiggle around a bit and get it wrong. And so I'm not particularly, I'm not a particular expert in how to, how to hit the right pitch at, in that range. But I guess, right. I guess hearing, yeah. Well, tell us about Joan Baez. You, you, you brought up Joan Baez as, as someone that uh, you'd rather have dinner with. Yeah. So, so she was one of the first American folk singers that I was exposed to because my parents had an LP. There wasn't a lot of music in my house when I grew up, but there was like a Simon Garfunkel and a Joan Baez album. And I listened to those ad nauseum. And that was one of my first concerts, actually, when I was, I think, 12 or 13. She happened to be in the little town next to my Bavarian cow town. And we went to that concert and I was really enchanted with the music. And I, at that point, I didn't know much about the political backdrop in front of which she wrote music and her life, you know, having been married to Dylan and so on. And I learned about that much later. And it seems like she has had such a rich and interesting life and such interesting activism that I I would find her really fascinating dinner partner. I couldn't agree more. I think that she would be a fantastic person. But on top of just the life that she's lived, she's also articulate and she's been very open. And the multiple interviews that I've read with, with Joan Baez, she seems like someone who would really have a conversation mm -hmm. and not just sort of stand on a soapbox and preach to you about what she right. believes. It would, it would really be conversational. Um, so I, I could imagine the same. That would be pretty fantastic. Yeah. Kurt, am I am I totally closing you out of? of no, you're podcast? you're absolutely fine. That Joan Baez is actually something I can talk about versus a Swedish choral and, you know, <laughs> music. I, I I know some of Joan's work. So anyway, uh, well, so you you sent us a playlist which we're mm. grateful for, and we will include in the show notes. What's on your playlist? Tell us about it. What are you listening to? Do you have a pandemic playlist? I guess I do in the sense that I have a running playlist that I keep adding things to as I discover them, but it's not, there isn't a particular pandemic theme. They're just songs that I happen to enjoy at the moment. Um, and so the playlist that I sent you, I decided to make the theme Scandinavian music because we said we were going to talk about that a little bit. And so many of the songs are choral songs that I've known for a long time and that I love. And pretty much all of them I've sung on various occasions in choirs. And then there's a there's one instrumental piece uh, that's a waltz composed by a folk duo from Denmark, accordion and violin, for uh, the parents of one of the two of them uh, for their, I think, 50th wedding anniversary that I find very, very moving. Mm. And then there's a, a really interesting piece called Eatnem and Vueli, which is sort of a, a combination of 
a Swedish psalm, so a Christian tune from the you know Swedish psalm book, and a Sami yoik. So Sami are the people in northern Sweden, the indigenous people, and a yoik is some sort of herding call. And that song combines those two elements with each other and and layers them on top of each other. Um, and I've sung the song and really loved it when I sang it and only later learned that it's the opening song of Frozen. So uh, if you oh. listen to that song and then listen closely to the Frozen opening song, you'll recognize that it's the same song, slightly different arrangement, but it shows up oh, there. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I'm going to have to make sure that my daughter listens to that. So, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, yeah. she, she was a huge fan. Uh, she's grown older and kind of out of it, but I, I, you know, I think she still would appreciate that. So that's cool. Thank you so much for, for sharing those. That sounds fantastic. I love that. First aid kit is one of my favorite uh, Swedish Americana style bands. Cause uh, I'm a more of an Americana guy, right. but do you listen to music while you work? I do sometimes, not not always, but um, yeah, on occasion I just put on Spotify radio or a playlist or something like that. Is there anything with with lyrics? We've talked to a number of people. This is a question we ask all the time, and and mm-hmm. there's a there's a discrepancy in in some people where they I can listen to any music, or I can I can listen to no music. But then there's within people who can listen to music, I can listen as long as there's no lyrics. If there's no words, it has to be instrumental because oh, once you start getting words, I. I I start thinking that I can't write or I can't do that work. Is there any any uh, discrimination from your perspective on that? Or is it just, uh, I can listen to music sometimes? Yeah. So I'm lucky in that I can focus very intensively on my work. And so I don't mind if it has lyrics. And maybe the other thing is that I don't often listen to music for the lyrics. I usually listen for the melody. Um, ah. There's So it doesn't bother me much. There's one exception on this playlist where I really love the lyrics of the song. It's called... Um, it's the first song on the playlist called Odensumbar in Lovetan. It's a Norwegian song. And it's sung by the the narrator is a dandelion, <laughs> a flower, <laughs> um, who is found, you know, in in a shit environment, like in dirty water behind a dumpster by someone who picks it up and brings it home and tends to it and puts it in water, and then it gets to go upstairs with him to his room and so on. And so it's obviously a metaphor for being found and being loved. And I find that such a beautiful, warm song. Oh, wow. Wow. Can't wait to listen to this. Oh, man. We are so grateful for all of your insights, all of these fun anecdotes, and for the conversation, Johannes. Thank you so much for joining us on Behavioral Groups today. Thanks very much for having me. It's very fun. So thank you all for listening to our conversation with Johannes, and we hope you'll check out the next episode, which is our grooming session, where Tim and I spew crazy thoughts from our heads. Well, they're not all crazy thoughts. True, we do try to offer some insights and unique perspectives into conversation, but sometimes, sometimes, Tim, you have to admit we go down rabbit holes and we just rant. Okay, well, I can't disagree with that. But but now that our grooving sessions are being split off from our interviews, they only last about 20 minutes, you know? So it's super easy to listen to it while you're, say, you're walking your dog. Ah, good point. Although sometimes if we rant, they go even longer. But we'll, we'll try <laughs> to keep this grooving session with Johannes down. All right. So you said, to you, but walking your dog, what if they don't have a dog, Tim? What, what happens? <laughs> can, can you listen to the grooving session if you don't have a dog and don't walk that dog? 
it shouldn't be uh, I don't know the conundrum yeah. that we are in this is just crazy <laughs> I, I don't know what to say anyway people please please listen to our grooving session it's a lot of fun as you can tell and hopefully you'll get some further insights into our conversation with Johannes so now we hope that you go out and find your groove